Have you ever wondered how Kobe Bryant became an Oscar nominee? Did you even know he was an Oscar nominee? These are the kind of questions that Cal Fussman gets answers into in his podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Best-selling author and Esquire columnist Cal Fussman talks to people who have lived extraordinary lives from Kobe to Dr. Oz to Tim Ferriss. These are really deep, thoughtful conversations, and you'll end up with burning questions answered and a few new ones to think about. Subscribe to Big Questions with Cal Fussman now on your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. With boxing on the wane in America for the past 20-some-odd years, it's easy to forget how much of a cultural juggernaut it was for much of the 20th century. Boxing was not only a common recreational pastime and athletic pursuit for young men and a wildly popular spectator sport, it was a metaphor for manhood and other American cultural struggles as well. When two men stepped in the ring, it wasn't just two men fighting. The bout could become a battle of white versus black, nativist versus immigrant, or democracy versus fascism. My guest today, Paul Besson, explores the cultural history of the heavyweight boxer in his latest books, The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. Paul and I begin our conversation discussing the man who created the archetype of the American heavyweight, John L. Sullivan, the Boston Strongboy. From there, Paul takes us on a vivid historical tour of many of boxing's all-time greats, including Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, James Braddock, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, and Mike Tyson. Along the way, Paul provides insights on how each of these heavyweight greats became conflicted symbols of masculinity in America. We end our conversation discussing why boxing is declared in America, what Paul has learned about being a man from writing about boxing. Even if you think you're not interested in boxing, you're going to find this show is fascinating. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash boxingkings. Paul joins me now via clearcast.io. Paul Beston, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Great to be with you. You got a book out, The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. The heavyweight boxer is sort of like this archetype of manliness. In fact, we've got, you know, the, our logo, The Art of Manliness, is based off of the very first American heavyweight boxer, John L. Sullivan. And I, this is, what I love about this book, not only is the stories of these individual boxers are interesting and fascinating, but boxing says a lot. You can learn a lot about American culture, the evolution of it, by studying or reading about the lives of these American boxers. So let's start off with the very first one, John L. John L. Sullivan. How did he set the archetype of what we think about when we think of a heavyweight boxer? Yeah, John L. Sullivan, who uh, who was champion from 1882 to 1892. I call him uh, in my chapter on him the, the George Washington of boxing, and and that's certainly in the United States. And that's really what he became because he just as just as Washington kind of created the office of of the presidency. John L. Sullivan really creates the office of heavyweight champion. There had been champions, a few champions before him, but. They didn't reach anything like the kind of recognition that he reached. Boxing was an, an illegal sport. It would remain illegal during his time. But what was different during Sullivan's career is that his fights were covered in, in you know, what the equivalent of the mainstream media. They were covered in newspapers, and, and some of them were even covered internationally. And he just became a figure known far and wide, known all around the United States, and is really one of the most famous Americans of the Gilded Age. The previous 
champions uh, such as they were before Sullivan didn't have anything like that kind of notoriety. It was really a kind of back alley affair. And, you know, the, the champions attained a certain fame among the fighting fraternity, but Sullivan just completely transcended the fighting fraternity. He became a figure in songs and, 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 and literature and, and, and art and a great hero to Irish Americans. He was a, he was a, a son of Irish immigrants. He was born in Boston in 1858. So his career, you know, it, it traces kind of the whole second half of the 19th century with the post-Civil War and the rise of the cities and the mass wave of immigration, especially the Irish, and also the rise of modern commercial sports, which he has a huge role in bringing about. Yeah. I mean, he was really like one of America's first big celebrities, really. I mean, he's sort of the, he sort of birthed American right. celebrity culture. That's right. He really did. And he's really the first sports star. I mean, baseball was getting going during his career. You know, the Major League National League started, I think it's 1876 or so. But he is, uh, you know, he's really the guy who who pioneers this whole idea of stardom. And, and celebrity itself in America was just coming into being in, in the way that we would we would think of it. You know, the, these figures who are sort of equally adulated and and reviled, you know, because he he was a very controversial figure too uh, because of his his personal life he was a a terrible alcoholic and he uh, he had all kinds of misadventures and so he had as many people hating him as loving him and you know we're very familiar with that dynamic today you know with celebrities and with athletes and so he's really at the forefront of, of all of that and he just because of the force of his personality and the force of his fighting skill he makes the heavyweight championship this this prominent thing that even people who don't follow boxing know about. And it had not been that before. He really kind of comes into a void and he leaves behind a whole world. Yeah. What I love when you talk about his personality and the force of his personality, uh, the guy was a character. So like, you know, he'd walk into rooms sometimes and he was known to say, you know, I can lick any son of a bitch in the house. Right. And he like right. <laughs> and he meant it. And or you talk about how Whenever he, he would just be talking, you know, to people. And whenever he finished what he said, he would say, yours truly, John L. (laughs) Sullivan. And he would sign his name in the air. That's right. Yeah, he had this great uh, thing about himself. Uh, He'd like to always say, always on the level, John L. Sullivan. You know, yours truly, John L. Sullivan, (laughs) always on the level. And yeah, he had, I mean, one of the things I, I try to get at in the book too is that he, and, and all these guys really will, will show, especially the great figures, is that somewhere along the line, they develop this notion of themselves, you know, and that's, you know, you see that in all, a lot of, you know, great celebrities and great figures in history. Somewhere along the line, they develop a notion that they have something, have something special, and there's some reason that the world should pay attention to them. And I think what's unique about Sullivan is that he seems to decide this when he becomes champion. And, and uh, again, it there would had been no precedent for thinking that before, you know, these other guys is kind of, again, like I said, sort of a back alley thing. These guys were not huge prominent figures, but he decided when he won that title, that this was a big deal and that he was a big deal. And he proceeded to then make it a big deal through his own, uh, his own career. So we've been talking a lot about his personality. What was he like as a fighter? Was, was he really, really good? Well, you know, it's in today's world, you know, we, we have this, age of advanced athletics and we're always looking back at these you know i see this a lot on on the internet and you know it's always kind of comparing former you know athletes from from earlier eras and it's very easy for us in our in our age to look back at 
some of these, you know, black and white images of baseball or football players and think, well, gosh, you know, they, they couldn't have been very good. Look at, look at the way they move or look at the bodies, you know, they're not as big and not as strong. They don't look like they're as fast, but of course we'd have to project those guys into the present day with all of the, the advantages we have today. And, and so all you, all any athlete can ever do is be great in his own time. And when Sullivan came along there, there had never been anything like him. You know, the boxing, I should say was, I mentioned that it was illegal, but it was also when he first started out was largely still being fought with the bare fists under what was called the London, the London prize ring rules. And it was just starting to move into using gloves, which Sullivan supported. But so there was two different sets of rules. There was the the gloved rules, which was the beginning of what we know today, modern boxing. But there was also this bare knuckle style of fighting, which was rather different. And in some ways is kind of a precursor to mixed martial arts because you could do wrestling holds and you, you, you know, you, 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 could take a guy down similar to in wrestling you could do headlocks while also punching so he he was adept at both in in both of these styles of fighting and he just had a level of aggression and his right hand punch that people you know people who had been watching this for a long time had not seen before and he he always had this line something that from the moment the bell rings i'm out to win you know from the i, I go in to win when i must and when i shall and uh, it was that the kind of electricity that he brought to it that that hadn't been there before. So, you know, how would he stack up against today's modern fighters? Who knows? I'll say this. I wouldn't want to fight him in one of those fights to the finish where there's no time limit. That, you know, that would be daunting. Yeah. And that was another thing I didn't realize about boxing, bare knuckle boxing. Like there weren't, there were rounds, but like you only got like, I think how long, like 30 second break or it was something... Not that. That's right. Yeah, there there were thirty seconds between rounds instead of sixty seconds today, and the rounds ended only when one man went down, what they called a fall, and that fall could be from a punch, could be from a wrestling toss, could be just taking a knee on your own uh, volition. So a round could be ten seconds long, but it could also be fifteen minutes, and some of them were. So these these fights would go on for you know we would say sixty rounds, seventy rounds, eighty rounds, and of course that sounds like my God that must be unbearable. But again, I mean to be fair, some of the rounds were very very short. On the other hand, you're out there for a long time, and the rest periods are shorter. So there there is no way to there is no judge. There's no judges and scorecards and all those controversial decisions that boxing fans rue. You know every year you didn't have to deal with that. The fight only ended when one man could no longer continue, whether he was counted out. Uh, you know, count of 10, or he just couldn't fight anymore. So he wins the the heavyweight championship. Let's talk about this. This is interesting because I think this will help help listeners with the rest of the discussion. Like who determines who is the heavyweight champion? Like how did, how did we, how did people decide that John L. Sullivan was the heavyweight champion of the world? And how do we figure that out today? Cause there's like three different, you know, branches of boxing out there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'll answer the older question first because it's easier. <laughs> Today is really a mess. But, you know, Sullivan won his title by defeating a man named Patty Ryan, who was called the champion. Patty Ryan was called champion because he'd beaten the fighter, you know, previous to him. And and it was kind of, again, boxing was an illegal sport. It didn't have a commission or organizing body. So it was, you know, who was the champion? The champion was essentially by acclamation by the people who organized the fights people who are competing in it. And then, you know, at some point you, there came to be a recognized champion. And once that guy was recognized, 
generally by consensus, then it would be pretty easy to determine who the next champion was because it would be whoever would beat him. And that's the traditional way in boxing, of course. You know, you become champion by beating the champion. You don't become champion by saying you are or having some some shady organization say that you're a champion without having done that. So that's there's an old saying in boxing. They call it the, the man who beat the man who beat the man. And that's kind of a, what they call today the lineal title. In other words, it can be traced backwards in time through all the guys who held it. So once Sullivan had really established this and made this a, a prominent thing, and he lost his title in 1892 to a guy named James J. Corbett, well, then James J. Corbett was the heavyweight champion. And from there, the whole story unfolds in a pretty straight line through most of my book. Fortunately, it doesn't get too confusing till near the end of my book when multiple organizations, sanctioning organizations, begin begin to come into the sport starting around the early 60s, but really taking off in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, when I got into boxing in the 70s as a kid, even then there were two champions in each division. But that looks like a golden age compared to now, because now there's three, sometimes four champions in each division. And that's because these these sanctioning organizations all name their own champions and they they tend to be jealously guarded about you know, making sure they don't fight the other guy's champion because they don't want to lose theirs they want to keep the the title under their tent so it's a very it's a very unsatisfying arrangement uh, boxing fans have been complaining about it forever it didn't reach the heavyweights for a while because the heavyweights were so prominent and and they had such giant figures like Muhammad Ali it was very hard to imagine the public accepting you know two heavyweight champions but eventually it did trickle down to the heavyweight trickle up, I should say, to the heavyweight division as well. And today, there's, I think, there's three guys who claim claim some piece of the heavyweight title. Which is, I mean, what I compare it to to friends is imagine if there were two or three football teams walking around saying that they were the Super Bowl champion. I mean, nobody would take that seriously, right? And then maybe we'll get into that later. Talking about sort of the decline of the the heavyweight in American culture. You know, going back to Sullivan, right? He was both celebrated and reviled. And this guy, yeah, he. He lived a hard life, yeah. drank a lot, lost a lot of money, had a whole bunch of, I mean, he was married a couple times, divorced. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting, like he would get incredibly out of shape, but he would somehow muster up some sort of willpower to get into fighting condition and, and try to win another fight. Yes. And he was quite good at that. You know, the the drinking was a big part of, of the boxing culture, you know, from the beginning. I mean, it was... Um, you know, it was, this was very much a working man's subculture, an immigrant, heavily immigrant. And, and you know, the Irish were, were just very, very prominent in the early days of boxing. And there's a lot of drinking in Irish culture. And so these guys, it was very often that former fighters would just really end up in the gutter, essentially as drunks and usually quite poor. So Sullivan kind of fit right right in there. And he did, he had, you know, kind of Olympian appetites for food and, and booze. And he would get grossly overweight between between fights and a few fights he came in into the match clearly terribly hung over and he couldn't even perform so as i was saying earlier his public reputation was it was huge and it was large but it was also you know conflicted and complex because there are as many people criticizing him sometimes as cheering him but when he got motivated he would get himself into shape and the thing that you could surely motivate him with most of all is suggest even suggest that you could beat him, or that you were somehow the rightful champion. Uh, you get his goat. He had a pretty strong temper. If you got his te- his goat, get him motivated, he was going to work himself into shape. And then, you know, you're going to have uh, quite an opponent on your hands. So, you know, he said you he only lost one fight, I believe. And that was against 
Corbett, or he lost a couple. Yeah. Did he lose any? I thought he was undefeated except for Corbett. He was. He was undefeated except for Corbett. He had another match that that ended essentially in a draw and was kind of demoralizing to him, but it was not a not a defeat. So yeah, he he the only fight he lost was the last one of his career to Corbett, and that's where he lost the heavyweight title. And did he fight after that? He fought exhibitions. He off he, for many years on and off, and then there was a kind of miraculous thing that happened in 1905 where he actually got back in the ring in his late 40s and grossly overweight against a a plausible professional fighter, a young man, and knocked him out with one punch in the second round. And the this was in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the place just went crazy. It was almost like a just like a bolt from the past. But you know, he no, his career was essentially over uh, after he lost to Corbett. And I thought it's funny, even when he lost to Corbett, he gave this con- sort of conciliatory speech this, and uh, yes. in- ended it with "Yours ever always." John L. Sullivan. <laughs> That's right. And he also said in that speech, which I think is interesting, is that he was, he was if he had to lose, he was glad he, would, he could lose it to an American. And so that was very important to him. Of course, Sullivan didn't see didn't tend to include blacks in the description of Americans. And of course, that's, that's one of the clouds over his career because he, he is the man who drew the, the racial color line in, in heavyweight boxing and refused to give black challengers a shot. So that shadows his career and his accomplishments. But he was very proud of being an American and he wanted, he very much saw the title as something that Americans should possess and be proud of. Sounds like Dole the Butcher from Gangs of New York. <laughs> yeah. We're going we're gonna to talk about the color line here in a bit, but I thought it was interesting too. You know, yeah, he had this sort of life of just riotous living, but it seemed like he kind of tempered out in old age and got his act together a bit. Oh, he did. You know, I think that's something frankly under-remarked about him and I was really struck by it again recently because as we're recording this uh, tomorrow uh, is the 100th anniversary of his passing actually February 2nd 1918 and so I was I was looking up some things and, and writing a few things about it and his his late in life turnaround is is pretty remarkable you know I mentioned that that miraculous fight he had in 1905 where he just had this bolt from the blue not long after that he's sitting in a hotel bar with a glass of champagne and he just suddenly said announces out loud this is it i'm not drinking anymore he pours it into a into a, a spittoon and you know his friends kind of chuckle they've heard this before but he means it and he never drinks again and he winds up becoming a temperance lecturer and he remarries an old childhood friend a woman named kate harkins they uh take in a, a young orphan boy who they really dote on. They start this small farm in, uh, in Massachusetts. He becomes very popular around town. Little children love to come and play on the farm. And he really does end his life, I think, in a, in, in a place of, of peace, some, you know, some redemption. So let's get back to the color line. I think oftentimes when we think of American sport, we often, in, in the color barrier and breaking it, we often think of baseball and Jackie Robinson, but boxing actually led the way in racial integration in sports. So when did we first start seeing integrated fights in America? Well, they actually go back pretty far. They, they weren't very common, which I, I will get to in a second, but there were, you know, there, there were, um, there were black champions in the lower weights. There was a, a fighter named George Dixon who won the, the featherweight title uh, in the 1890s. And then in the very early 1900s, there was a, the great uh, Joe Gans, who was a lightweight champion and is still regarded today as one of the greatest, maybe the greatest lightweight 
whoever fought. So it, they would happen sometimes at the lower weights, but there it was always a conflict around it because of the uh, the racial environment at the time. There was a lot of of discomfort about seeing black men and white men get in the ring together, and and you know some people would say, well, it's going to cause tensions between the races or it's going to cause trouble. But you know the underlying fear really was what happens if the black guy wins. It, there, that was a, a real fear. This is a time of uh, not only tremendous racism and uh, you know Jim Crow had gone into effect in the South. But also, you know, those these quote unquote scientific theories of of, of racial superiority or the, the Anglo race and the inferiority of of the African races, and it, some of this was also directed at at other ethnicities such as the Irish. But obviously, it was the worst of all for for blacks. So there was just a lot of discomfort about that. That getting the two two races in the ring together was going to lead to nothing but but trouble. So it didn't happen that often. But on the other hand. Blacks did probably have more opportunity in boxing than they had elsewhere. And, and in a funny way, boxing's illegality probably, you know, helped them in that sense because, again, it had this kind of informal uh, nature to it, unlike uh, Major League Baseball, which was already banning blacks by, you know, by the 1880s. So they kept them out of the heavyweights. That was the big thing. The, the, the prize that the, the sort of citadel that blacks were not to approach was the heavyweight title. And of course, that again goes back to Sullivan drawing that color line. He would have had a lot of support for that, but he, he did sort of take it upon himself to declare that. And it's fascinating to wonder what how history might have gone differently if he had not done that. But he did. And so it was uh, a very powerful bar to blacks having any chance at the heavyweight title for the early history of, of the championship. And when did you start seeing African-Americans fighting for the heavyweight championship? It just happened uh, out of the blue in 1908 with the arrival of, of Jack Johnson, who had been an outstanding challenger for a while. And, you know, there, there'd been outstanding black challengers before him and people like Sullivan and others had had denied them a, a, a title shot. But Johnson came along. He, he was the outstanding challenger. He had some support in the press. And the main, the, the biggest thing was that they found a promoter who could offer the white champion at the time, a guy named Tommy Burns, who said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fight a black fighter, but if you give me $30,000, I will. And lo and behold, they came up with the $30,000. So they finally made the match. And it wasn't really the result of any great change in social attitude. In fact, it was the opposite because the match was was condemned by many people, including Sullivan, who thought that Burns shouldn't have shouldn't be doing this. Johnson goes on and just just takes Burns apart and beats him decisively and becomes the first man to win the black that first black man that is to win the heavyweight title. And then we're really off to the races because now you've got a black man at the top of the top of the heavyweight division, which has already by 1908 become, you know, the heavyweight championship has already become a, a prize of, of real value and, and symbolism to Americans. Again, going back to Sullivan and his successors, really seeing it as a kind of symbol of, of national power and, and manhood. And when they say manhood, they mean white manhood. So Johnson, you know, instantly enters the pages of boxing history because his whole career is going to be a mirror of the country's racial situation. And it's, it's not, a, not a happy picture. What's interesting, though, is that Johnson sort of, even though he broke the color line that Sullivan set in place, he followed Sullivan in sort of fitting himself to the archetype of sort of this bigger-than-life character that a heavyweight champion, like this guy, he lived larger. He, the guy was just a, he, a lot of personality. 
would be a good way to say it. Yeah, it's funny. They're, they're kind of kindred spirits. And uh, in a funny way, they I think Sullivan came to actually like Johnson. He came to spend a little bit of time with him in, in 1910 when, when Johnson was engaged in the biggest match of his career against former champion James J. Jeffries. And this was a fight that became the biggest fight in the history of boxing at the time. It was on July 4th, 1910. Jeffries was a former heavyweight champion. He was white. He was, this is where the phrase, the great white hope comes from. Uh, He was seen by millions of whites as their chance to take this title back and prove once and for all the races are, are not equal, that the white man is rightfully on top. And it's just a fight loaded with so much social tension and significance. And, you know, the heavyweight title has meant a lot to people for a long time. Certainly during the history I talk about in the book, but there are a couple points in the history where it means a little too much. It means more than than any athletic contest should. And this was one of those times in 1910. There's just too much riding on this. It's not healthy. And Johnson wins the match easily. And uh, after the fight is over in the days subsequent, there's race riots across the country, terrible race riots, and the deadliest in the country before the 1960s. So it's really, uh, again, as I said, a really a mirror of where things were at that time. And the, the fear, the tremendous fear that Johnson tapped into among whites of, of blacks uh, showing ability in, in this area. But Back to Sullivan real quickly. He he ends up on a train with Johnson riding home, home from the fight. And he was also the first man to step between the ropes and shake his hand when he won the fight. So it's it's interesting. He's it's it's interesting seeing his reaction to Johnson. And what's interesting about what I when you read about Johnson was that okay, obviously white America was not a fan of him. But there was also a lot of people in the African American community that didn't really care for him either. What was the dynamic between Johnson and and African-Americans? Yeah, I think there's two reasons for that. I mean, one reason is, you know, he's he's so unpopular that there's a fear among blacks that he was really just going to make things harder for them, which was a perfectly reasonable fear to have. And in fact, subsequently after his career, it's a long time, 20 plus years before another black fighter gets a chance at the heavyweight title and that was the shadow of Johnson. So, you know, boxers had black boxers didn't regard him very fondly at all in the years after. It's really been more recently since the sixties that we've looked at Johnson and, and seen him uh, and celebrated him more. But he was really looked upon a little bit more notoriously in the early stages of his career. And and part of this also is because he, he was not someone who's exactly leading an exemplary life. He he was kind of like Sullivan. He loved, you know, he loved the sensual life. He was uh, loved nightclubs. He loved fast cars. He loved alcohol. And his particular fondness was not just for lots of women, but for prostitutes. His uh, uh, Many of his consorts were prostitutes. He married a prostitute. And this was, you know, that kind of behavior would have been scandalous for a white champion to some degree, but for a black champion, this just made Johnson such a lightning rod for every conceivable kind of criticism. So yeah, some blacks were really worried that he was setting a bad example for the race. But others, of course, certainly admired him and celebrated him, the guy going into the ring and, and beating beating white fighters. So he was a complicated figure. Definitely. And I thought it was you know, kind of adding that complication, you know, he even had his own color line. He wouldn't fight other African-Americans for some reason. Well, he, yeah, that's right. As champion, he did not. Coming up, he fought black fighters all the time, including several great boxers who are, who are still remembered in, in boxing history, black fighters who didn't get their chance. So he fought them repeatedly because that's 
kind of who they could fight. They sometimes couldn't get matches with white fighters because they were too good. But once he became champion, he saw no reason to give those guys a chance. You know, he was a businessman. If there's one, if there's one thread that runs through the title that all these guys will have in common, it's, you know, this is a business. And you get that title, you're going to hold on to it with all that you've got. And so Johnson saw no reason to give them a chance also because they wouldn't be economic it wouldn't be economically very appealing because the racism in the country at that time two black men fighting for the title had no appeal at all near the end of johnson's title career he does give another black challenger a shot but it's not one of those top guys i mentioned it's a pretty uh mediocre fighter right and just to give you an idea of like how entwined boxing was in american culture like the guy who came up with that the great white hope phrase that was jack london the novelist he was i guess he wrote a n- newspaper article mm-hmm. asking about that so i mean like literature was like tied in like everyone was keyed in on boxing th- during this time yeah it really was and, and and it would stay that way you know through through most of the period that i chronicle through my book i mean uh, it's it that's one of the most remarkable things about the story is how how much it extended out uh, beyond the ring you know not just to these political and social things that we were just talking about but how many writers were drawn to this, drawn to the ring and drawn to the figures of the ring and, and going well forward into the 30s and 40s and figures like Richard Wright and later on James Baldwin and obviously Norman Mailer wrote a lot about boxing and the writers just go through the history of it. And, you know, there's a lot of kinship between writers and, and boxers, I think. This is the solitary nature of what they have to do. Yeah, and, and it started with Sullivan as well. I mean, Sullivan was a, was a figure of fascination from the very beginning. We're going to take a quick break for your award from our sponsors. All right, buying dress shirts can be a big pain in the rear. You go to the department store, you got to know your neck size. You have to find, you know, track down somebody to measure your neck. You get your neck size, you put on the shirt, but the neck fits. Everything's too billowy or it's too tight on around the body. So you go up a size on the neck, but now the neck's too big. Everything else fits fine. It's a big hassle. You can solve all this by getting a custom fit shirt. You'd be probably thinking, Brett, that's going to cost me an arm and a leg. Not so with proper cloth propercloth.com you can choose from over 20 collar styles 10 cuff styles and 500 fabric styles from classic to business to completely customize your shirt and get the style you want and then you have to just answer 10 simple questions no tape measure required and they're going to get you a perfect fitting shirt i did this got a nice white oxford button down answer those 10 questions it's kind of dubious got the shirt it fit me great and they're guaranteed fit so if something doesn't fit right you will send it back to them and Proper Cloth will make it for free. This is the future of shirts, people. These shirts are made completely custom for you. And here's the thing. They're just starting at 80 dollars that's it 80 dollars stop wearing shirts that don't fit start looking your best with a custom fitted shirt from proper cloth go to propercloth.com slash manliness today and enter gift code manliness to get 20 dollars off your first shirt again propercloth.com slash manliness gift code manliness to save 20 dollars on your first shirt also by your mechanic is there anything worse than sitting in the waiting room of a repair shop or getting that call that your car is going to take two more days to fix and it's going to cost hundreds more than estimated if so you need to check out your mechanic your mechanic since the mechanic right to your home or office. They could be fixing your brake pads right now out on your driveway while you're listening to this podcast in the comfort of your home. Better yet, at yourmechanic.com, you get a quote up front and it's the actual price you pay. They'll even show you what it costs to get the same repair somewhere else and they'll back up every service with a 12,000 mile, 12 month warranty. Not to mention, they give you full background checks to all their mechanics who have 10 years of experience on average. Car won't start, check engine light bugging you, need a brake job, call the day to schedule an appointment or visit yourmechanic.com slash manliness and a mechanic will come to your home or office. And for a limited time, my podcast listeners can get $20 off their first service. 
purchase. So again, you, to get that $20 off, you got to go to yourmechanic.com slash manliness to get $20 off your first service or call 1-800-701-6230. Again, 1-800-701-6230. And now back to the show. So um, speaking of Jack London, you uh, say that like one of the next big heavyweights, there were some other ones, but like the next one that it really had a big cultural impact on America was a guy you said came straight out of a Jack London novel. That's Jack Dempsey. What was it about Jack Dempsey that made him so captivating to Americans? Well, I think he, he is kind of the next figure from Sullivan in that sense of bringing something new to the style of fighting. And he brought a speed of attack and aggressiveness to boxing that it had not just hadn't seen before and there's something very symbolic about it it's just at the era when when we're moving into the 1920s and all this technology is going to start coming in the radio and motion pictures are still fairly new and Dempsey it's the the real analog for Dempsey later on in history is Mike Tyson and you know a lot of listeners will have associations to Mike Tyson or old enough to remember when he first came along in the 80s how exciting that was and how people would say you know get the Tyson fight on in the first round because there may not be a second round. That was kind of what Dempsey was like when he came along. He uh, had a whole string of knockouts in the first round, second round. He attacked from the opening bell. He presented himself in this. He would come in, you know, with this, this what they call the hobo haircut. He looked very rough. He was a guy from the West. He had had a tough wandering life before he, before he ended up as champion. And so he tapped into a lot of, uh, I think, kind of archetypal, images that have that have endured uh, in boxing ever since and it was his it was his aggressive style that captured people just at the point in the roaring 20s when sports was going to explode you know when when babe ruth was going to start hitting home runs and and uh and the radio was going to come in to be able to bring sports to people in, in mass numbers dempsey comes along and he's not a defensive fighter he's not a cautious fighter he just puts it all out there in every fight in every round and uh, it makes him uh, you could still argue the greatest draw in the history of boxing because while the pay-per-view receipts uh, of recent years uh, you know, exceed everything in dollar value, Dempsey was bringing bodies into the seats, 100,000, 120,000, 150,000 people coming to these fights and traveling on trains from different cities to get there. So this guy really got people's interest. And did he try to take that fame he gained in the boxing ring out in you know to other areas of the light, start other businesses tapped with that celebrity? Sure. Yeah, you know, that's a a great a great point. And that that also starts with with Sullivan is this whole idea that you can take this title and the real value of the title in a way is outside the ring because when you've got that title, it's your it's your calling card to get you into whole kinds of all kinds of other ventures. And, you know, in Sullivan's day, it was the stage and vaudeville and, and Jack Johnson did that too. Jack Johnson was a pretty good musician. He kind of conducted his own little jazz band and he performed on vaudeville stages and all the champions did, even if they didn't have any performing skills, they would show up on vaudeville and they would just talk. They would, might just recite something or they might just explain how they won their last fight. They would get them out there to do something so that people could come and see them. And Dempsey has the good fortune of not just having that, but in the 20s, of course, Hollywood is is really blooming. And so he gets all kinds of uh, work in Hollywood and silent films. And he starts making more money outside the ring than he does inside of it. And, and that's one reason why, as his title years wound on, uh, he's fought less and less. He's just making so much money. 
doing other things. Yeah, and he started like people would make movies just for him to be in. Yeah, that's <laughs> he right. like a bit line. That's and that right. Was it. Just yeah, just play a good guy, saving saving the girl. You know, just very very uh, stock sort of plots. But people wanted to see him. Yeah. You know, and and he went on the stage uh, with that kind of stuff as well. I think at one point he said, "I, I think I almost destroyed the American theater." So he, he was always pretty self deprecating about his talents, but. He was in demand. Right. Yeah, the same thing with Sullivan. Like, he played a blacksmith in some play. Then it was really bad, supposedly. It wasn't that great of a play, but he would he would, <laughs> right. he would say his line, then do a little boxing exhibition, and then he'd make a ton of money. Yeah, and when he would say his lines and they would cheer and applaud in the middle, he would start over. <laughs> <laughs> but so some of these boxers, they, they, they boxed and they became you know, theater or movie stars. But there were some actual legitimate thespian boxers, like uh, James Corbett. I think he was he was an actor, like a legitimate actor. And there were some guys who, they were actors, they got into boxing, and then they went back to acting. Tell us about some of these like famous thespian boxers. Well, Corbett is definitely the, the most accomplished. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. He really was good at it. Uh, again, he did, he first parlayed it from boxing. I mean, he saw the title to, as his way to get into this, but his acting career lasted for the rest of his life. And it wasn't just like bit parts. It was a working career. And, and it, it wound up encompassing, you know, plays, uh, comedies, vaudeville, even some silent films. And there are a number of biographies on him. And one of them focuses entirely on his, uh, on his performing career, uh, non-boxing, that is. So he, this is, he died in 1933. So you're talking about a 40-year career in theater. He, he helped form an actor's union in Broadway. He really had a very distinguished career. He was pretty, pretty good. Uh, most of the other guys were not of that caliber. You know, a guy who probably could have been a star and certainly thought he should be and, and wanted to be instead of a boxer was a, a champion who was a very uh, brief champion, Max Baer from the 1930s. One of my favorite characters in the book because he's just such a a lovable character and he's he's just richly funny a terrific sense of humor and that was the problem for him as a boxer is he was too busy making people laugh and didn't really have the killer instinct that a great champion needs but he was uh, he was a real cut up and he made one movie with Mirna Loy in 1933 called The Prize Fighter and the Lady. This is actually quite quite good. It's a romantic comedy, and he he sings in that not not very well, but he's very captivating. He has a great screen presence, and uh, I think he saw the heavyweight title as his way to get into that kind of career, but it didn't quite pan out. Although a little sequel to that is his son Max Jr. wound up becoming a star on the Beverly Hillbillies. So whenever I mention Max Bear, that's what people seem to remember is is uh, is Max Jr. as Jethro. So. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, these guys, they always took their, later on, uh, would take their shot at singing. Singing became a big thing. So, uh, even Muhammad Ali, uh, if you go on YouTube, you can hear him sing when he's still known as Cassius Clay, a, a pretty passable version of, uh, stand by me. It's not bad. He was hanging out with Sam Cooke. So Sam was helping him out there. And Joe Frazier had a long singing career. He had grown up singing in the church in South Carolina and, you know, sometimes he sounds a little rough. Other times he sounds pretty good. So they did always see this title as some way to get into into another life. And even right up to the present day, we've got Mike Tyson, who's got a whole second career now as a performer. Right. I mean, how do you think this this connection to showmanship influenced boxing? Did they bring that to the ring or like how they entered the ring or their their boxing persona? 
Yeah, I think that's a it's a great question. And boxing is, I boxing is by far the most theatrical sport. I, I just think the two things go together like bread and butter. You know, it, it's just I have a friend who who actually writes about this quite a bit, and uh, you know, he points out that uh, that boxing and, and the theater are really are really cousins to one another. You know, the the, the stage and the ring uh, lighting is very important. The action takes place in a limited space. You've got two. You got your attention focused on two players. Even great matches often seem to have a kind of play structure to them sometimes, even even before the match, all the stuff that goes into setting them up and all the, the sort of side stage dramas about how the fights get made. And then there's just that whole element of the really great theatrical element in every boxing match, even if the match turns out not to be good, is that that entry into the ring up that aisle that each guy makes and you can't get much more theatrical than that and then they're they're disrobed you're taking the robes off and all your guys are gonna all your supporters are gonna step through the ropes and leave you there alone to uh make your case you know against your opponents so i think that that the boxers uh, had a natural inclination to pursue the stage because in many ways they already were on stage. They were, they, they were performers yeah, much more than, than other athletes who play on teams. And, you know, sometimes they're just a cog in the wheel, you know, boxers are used to being the star. Yeah. So after Dempsey, we move into the depression. How did, how did the great depression affect boxing? It was actually, you know, most histories of the sport really regard the depression in, in, in a way as a golden age because uh, economically things were obviously very hard. And if you look at the, the gate receipts of the, the big heavyweight fights, especially in the early parts of the 30s, they're, they're way, way, way down from, you know, what Jack Dempsey was pulling in in the 20s. And that's really reflecting the, the economic climate. But, you know, the promoters started cutting cutting ticket prices some and the biggest thing was that boxing was kind of like the movies in the 30s it was one of those tonics one of those few tonics that people had to divert them from from the other hardships that were going on in the country and it was also a time of just incredible ethnic diversity in boxing the irish were still on the scene but the italians were now becoming very prominent black fighters of course were were still in the mix and eventually going to get their crowning glory in the mid-30s when Joe Lewis shows up at the heavyweight level. So there was tremendous interest in boxing. Radio was now fully established. And the 30s, I think, is uh, the 30s and the 40s, it doesn't get much better than that for boxing. Everything since then is pretty much a slow, slow, steady trickle downward from that peak. Boxing and baseball were the top sports in the country. Football, the NFL was you know, it existed, but it, it wasn't anything like what, what it was today. The NBA, these things were not on the scene. They were not factors. Boxing was a major league sport, a mainstream interest. Yeah, and it seems like the Depression added to the, the drama of the sport. Because you have, like, you know, the Cinderella man, yeah. like, you know, James J. Braddock. Like that, That's right. it's an amazing story. Yeah, it really was. And it just it just connected with people everywhere. And, you know, that was really a... You know, the heavyweight title, the, the the great champions like a Dempsey or a Sullivan or Johnson, they they do tend to be, even though they come from usually pretty common circumstances, they they tend to be elevated and they at some point they become kind of godlike. But in the '30s, it was much more approachable, and again, it was just that 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 sense of the depression, you know. And and so James J. Braddock, the Cinderella man, he's a great, he really literally is the guy next door. I mean, he was a fighter, he was a longtime fighter and a good one. But he had fallen on very hard times, just like everybody else. He'd lost a whole bunch of fights, and he'd been written off years before then until he made this incredible rally, which is uh, 
which is pretty well uh, portrayed in the movie with with Russell Crowe. Which uh, the great thing about that story is, I always tell people is that it's actually true. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was amazing. A lot of these boxers went, like, including Braddock, like once they made their winnings, they would go back to the welfare agency where they used to support them, and they would pay them back. There was that, you know, that sense of dignity that they wanted to regain. Yeah, that's a famous part of Braddock's story. And, and one of the, the most exciting surprises for me in writing this book was that I discovered two other guys who did it, as you were just alluding to. I had no idea that Joe Lewis had done the same thing. You know, Joe Lewis is remembered for so many other things. It's it's no wonder that that, that detail is kind of lost. And Jersey Joe Walcott, who was a champion briefly in the in the early 50s, I had also been on relief with his family and also paid the agency back. So it does really tell you a little bit about those times and the way people saw things like that. So speaking of Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber, this this is another boxer where his race embedded his career with a lot of a lot of meaning, you know, sort of under underneath the fight. And what was interesting about Joe Lewis compared to Jack Johnson, he became sort of this symbol of American democracy for both African-Americans and whites. Tell us about his rise to sort of this sort of symbol of America during World War II. Yeah, Joe Lewis is uh, is really a giant of the story, uh, a giant of the, the whole history of the heavyweight title. When you look at those top 10 lists that people love to make, it's anybody who is knowledgeable. It's usually two guys are at the top two spots. It's Muhammad Ali and Joe Lewis and Sometimes the order is reversed, but it's always those two guys. And Joe Lewis, for the longest time, was regarded as as the undisputed greatest heavyweight ever. So as a boxer, his, he has very few peers. When he came along in the early 30s, as we were talking about, blacks hadn't had a shot at the heavyweight title since Johnson had lost it. And Johnson lost it in 1915. So it was going on 20 years when, when Joe Lewis showed up. But Lewis's talent was just off the charts. I mean, it was off the charts as an amateur and as an early pro. He was born in Alabama, but he, he grew up uh, from around the age of 12 or so in Detroit. So he was fighting out of Detroit. And that's where he discovered boxing when he was supposed to be taking violin lessons. Another one of those great details. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, once his once his potential was was clear to his management team, they became determined to really pull off the impossible, which was get him a shot at the heavyweight title. And one thing they realized is that that would not even be a possible at all if he if he struck any chords that reminded people of Jack Johnson. So they famously drew up a set of rules about how he was to conduct himself in public. And some of those rules included never being seen with a white woman, but also never doing other things that Johnson had done, such as gloat over opponents, again, especially white opponents, but really any opponents, not to be seen out in nightclubs, you know, by himself or, or with, with another woman, you know, that kind of stuff. And so there's a whole bunch of different things. He was not to, to raise his, you know, boast over opponents. The thing that's funny about those rules, people make a lot of those rules that make a lot of those today, and they, they are important. But the thing is, Joe Lewis's personality was perfectly consistent with those rules anyway. He was a, a soft-spoken person. He was not like Jack Johnson. It would never have occurred to him to boast over an opponent anyway. So the rules fit him pretty nicely. It wasn't like any great effort for him to pull that off. He certainly had his uh, female liaisons, but he was discreet about it. So he he's, he makes his way up. He's knocking out everybody in sight. And, you know, the, he just became impossible to deny. And they, he finally got his chance at the title against Braddock, who we were just talking about. 
and, and knocks him out in 1937 to become heavyweight champion. Second black man to win the heavyweight title, first one in 22 years. And there's still a ton of racism directed at him. Uh, there's, there's more goodwill than there was for Johnson. But one of the things that really stood out for me in working on Lewis was reading the old newspaper articles and the language that's used, especially by writers who are nominally on Lewis's side. <laughs> they, they, they think that they're praising him, you know, that they, they mean to praise him, but they're using all kinds of condescending and, and, and racist language to talk about him. So that was, that was the climate. Two things really send his career into, into the, the next realm. First is that he has this great rivalry with Max Schmeling from Germany, who becomes Adolf Hitler's favorite fighter. We're in the 1930s, remember. So Schmeling is adopted by the Nazi regime as a symbol of Aryan supremacy and strength. And in his first match with Lewis, he knocks Lewis out. Lewis's first loss as a professional and a huge upset, not expected. Through a series of uh, complicated moves, Lewis gets a shot at the title before Schmeling. And so he's the champion. Schmeling comes back to the United States two years later in 1938 to have a shot at the title against Lewis, the big grudge match. This is a match on the levels of the other one I was mentioning before, Jeffries and Johnson. It's just one of those times the title might mean almost too much. You've got Hitler buying into it. The Nazis see their whole uh, racial theory riding on Schmeling. Meanwhile, Americans are rooting for Lewis. Certainly blacks, certainly Jews want to see Lewis win. But one of the the transforming turning points in the story is that more and more whites come to root for Lewis because they see him as the American fighter, not as the black fighter. And so that's not to say that there weren't plenty of whites also rooting for Schmeling. There certainly were, but they show up, they show down and uh, they confront one another in Yankee stadium in June 38. And Lewis uh, with the pressure of the world on his shoulders, really, I think more than any athlete has ever faced just destroys Max Schmeling in two minutes. And it's on YouTube. You can watch it. It's it's kind of a amazing thing to watch. So he wins that fight. It makes him a huge hero. Among blacks, he's at, at a level that is, I mean, there's just nobody more celebrated in black America than Joe Lewis. Time Magazine calls him the Black Moses. And he just goes on this long, long championship reign. He holds it for longer than any other champion, defends it against more challengers than any other champion. And then the final page in the saga, the war comes along and he suits up for the U.S. Army. And again, this wins enormous goodwill from from whites who just start to see this guy as, you know, as an American, as a fellow citizen, and as a hero. And uh, he even donates purses from two of his fights to the armed forces. So he just reaches a level of uh, kind of nobility and dignity that very few athletes have ever had. And by the end of his life, the end of his career, I should say, he's fighting white opponents and white people at ringside are rooting for Joe Lewis. So it's his, by the time his career ends, there's still a very long way to go on race relations, needless to say. But all of the legacy that he left behind, as best I can tell, is just entirely positive. It's an it's a amazing career. Yeah. And, and speaking of Max Schmeling, like he and Joe Lewis become really good friends later in life, which is right. another interesting yes, story. Yes, they did. Schmeling had to. Uh, Schmeling lived a very long life. He lived till nearly 100. And after uh, after he served in the German army and then after the war and post-war Germany, he eventually made his way to the United States. And he, he really wanted to connect with Lewis. He wanted to to kind of go over the past with him and, 
and and connect with him and you know that bitter fight that they'd had and and uh, and and they make the connection. Lewis has no ill feelings, and they did become good friends as older men. So there's after Lewis, there was you know a series of heavyweight champs that we I mean, we could talk about. There's Rocky Marciano, and um, but we can't in this conversation we can't not talk about Muhammad Ali, the greatest, right? As as he said, yeah. What what was it about Ali that made him such? I mean, he again, he's filling that archetype, that Sullivan set that you're going to be larger than life. It's going to be about you. But something about Ali, like he had this like really big impact, not just on boxing, but on but culture in America. So how did Ali change boxing? But then also, how did he change sport and celebrity in America? Yeah, he was the, you know, when I was growing up as a kid in the 70s and just stumbling into boxing, he was the champion at the time. And, you know, it's kind of a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, it's, boy, that's exciting to grow up with him as your first champion. On the other hand, who's ever going to be able to, what encore is ever going to follow that, you know? So, he he was he was a huge figure i remember in school people would just get in arguments about him and he was he was ubiquitous he was on commercials and uh he was just just everywhere and uh, he just seemed like he'd been around forever and of course as a young kid i didn't realize uh, you know his his earlier career and how contentious it was but yeah i, I think it's just it all start it starts and ends with this 100 megawatt personality. I mean, there's just, there've been great personalities in boxing before, but there's just nothing like this guy. I mean, you can watch stuff of his now on YouTube and, you know, he can still make you laugh. And when he came along, I think what's easy to forget now because we're so used to athletes being showmen and being boasters and braggarts and dressing outrageously and trying to draw attention to themselves is that before he came along, athletes did not act like that for the most part. Uh, you look at old clips of, you know, old football or baseball and the guy hits the home run, you know, they don't, they don't pound their chest. They don't point to the sky, you know, they don't pump their fist even. They just kind of cross home plate and shake hands and move on. And, and, um, and boxing and football and all the sports were really like that. And Ali came in when he landed in the early sixties, it really was like a visitor from another planet. It probably was a little bit like how people felt when, Elvis Presley showed up on their TV screens in the fifties. You know, who is this guy? Where did he come from? So, and he, he converged with what was about to happen in the culture. That's another key aspect, you know, of his career. So when he wins the title for the first time, he's still known as Cassius Clay at that time in February, 1964, that's the same month that the Beatles land in America. And these, uh, these two actually have a meeting. They have a photo op together and, they're seen by most of the press, both of them, Clay and the Beatles, as just sort of flavors of the month. Clay's going to get his head handed to him by Sonny Liston, the heavyweight champion. And the Beatles are going to be popular for a month or two, and then they're going to vanish the way most of these things do. Of course, that doesn't turn out to be the case. And they really turn out to be heralds of the youth culture that we all, we all know about from the 60s. So Ali came in at kind of the perfect time, but he had such a huge impact because sports had always been such a um, a preserve of stoicism usually you know i mean it's just talking about joe lewis and joe lewis was was a a great stoic publicly you know he would never gloat or boast or anything and ali was really blowing blowing that whole world apart and you know not everybody liked it um and then the second thing of course is that he that he converges with is the politics and so that has two pieces one is is the racial politics it means he's coming on uh right at the peak of the civil rights movement but um he does not adopt the civil rights movement he instead joins 
the Nation of Islam, which actually rejects the civil rights movement and openly confronts whites as racist and, in fact, racially inferior to blacks. So he really puts himself out on the edge with his politics, and then he steps out even further when he refuses induction into the armed forces during during these Vietnam years. So between the racial politics and the the the, the war politics, Ali by the late 60s, although he's he's looked upon today, people revere him and when he died, he was celebrated. In the late 60s, there are very few people in American life more divisive and more argued about than Muhammad Ali. So it's it's a huge it's a huge arc of his career that then comes full circle from the 70s and 80s when he becomes more popular and in certain ways the history helps him because the American people turn against the Vietnam War in much larger numbers. So people begin to look at him a little bit differently. But he, his legacy on sports I think, you know, is is probably those two pieces. One is uh, and it's it's as relevant as the NFL national anthem protests. It, it's, it's bringing overt politics and often tinged with racial concerns into sports. And it's the showmanship. It's the uh, kind of ego celebration. I should be frank and say, you know, I probably have a minority view in both of these things at this point in history, because I, I think, you know, on balance, a lot of this has not really worked out so positively. I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't think that the, the political aspect of sports is working out that great for people. I think you see that in the NFL ratings. I think people want sports to be, you know, kind of a refuge from the world. They don't want it to be another ground in which we're all fighting with one another. So I think it, you know, it's, it's complicated. And the second aspect about the showmanship, it's like a lot of originals. Ali could be just delightful as a showman, but when you've got everybody acting like that, it can be a bit tiresome, you know, and I, I, I find sports today with all the, the chest thumping and, and self-celebration to be a bit wearisome. Don't really mean to lay that all at his door, but, but uh, you know, you, you do get imitators and he certainly has had many imitators. So who do you think, this was like the 70s, 60s, 70s when he was fighting, his career eventually ended. Who do you think was the last great American heavyweight boxer? Like when when can we say like okay the, the the age of American heavyweights ended? Who was that guy? Well, in a in a pure boxing sense, I'd say the last great heavyweight was was Larry Holmes, who who uh, came right after Ali in the late seventies and was champion for much of the eighties, but is largely forgotten today because he he's sandwiched between two giants, Muhammad Ali and then Mike Tyson, who who followed him just on pure boxing, because I think that Holmes accomplished more in Tyson's boxing accomplishments while impressive. Uh, you know, it kind of fell short because his career his career kind of flamed out a lot earlier than people expected and we weren't quite able to see all that he was that he might have been capable of. But in terms of the last great figure you know, in terms of like the way I wrote the book and the figures that really reached out beyond the culture, it's it's certainly Tyson. Mike Tyson is is he's the end of this story more or less because uh, there hasn't been a figure since since Tyson on the American side who's had that kind of impact and that kind of sort of universal recognition. Yeah, and you know, Tyson was the guy, the champion when I was a kid. I remember '87. I think I was like five. Or so, like, you know, you were playing Mike Tyson Punch Out on Nintendo. I remember when the big fight was going on that summer. I I, I pretend I, I was Mike Tyson. I, I remember I smacked my brother in the my two-year-old brother in the face. <laughs> I walloped him. I got in trouble for that. But my brother was a bum. He was not a good fighter. A two-year-old. Um right. but what I what I didn't know about Mike, because now he's sort of you know, this, I don't know, he's sort of lampooned, right? 
today. He plays, and he he's kind of he he understands that, and he he plays these characters where you know kind of people kind of poke fun at him. But I didn't. What I didn't know about him was how he was first a talent. He was strong. He was fast, but he was also very cerebral about his boxing. Like he would just sit and watch old films going back to the '30s, and he would read about John L. Sullivan. And you know, whenever he would try to imitate some of the great boxers, like his haircut was inspired by Dempsey, and he walked out like Dempsey without a robe on. Tell us a bit more about that side of, of Tyson that people don't know about. Yeah, I have always thought that that's one of the the really alluring and, and poetic aspects of Tyson's story. And, you know, I was a pretty big boxing fan by the time he came along in the 80s. So I remembered that even then and because they would they would spotlight it when they would do stories on him and it was kind of like the thing you'd script you know it's like let's let, let, let's make up a story about a boxer who's not only great but he he loves the history i mean oh come on that's not going to happen these guys don't care about the history they just want to you know they're focused on their fights but tyson really did he really did watch these films and and of course that's largely because he was spending he spent from about the age of 13 on in the house of customato a great trainer who trained not just tyson but before him, uh, Floyd Patterson, a, a heavyweight champion. And D'Amato had French friends and associates with uh, Jim Jacobs, who was uh, the great fight film collector, who had the greatest collection of fight films in, in known possession. And those have now been bought up by by ESPN, and that's that's why you're able to see them all. But back then, you know, you couldn't just watch fight films. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have YouTube, so it was it was hard to get them. He had them in his possession, and uh, this young kid was just wanted to know everything about boxing. There was a library of boxing books as well in the D'Amato house, and Tyson was reading those books as well, and not just about heavyweights, about fighters from all divisions. And when he became champion, he started he started doing these little tributes that nobody would really notice except someone who was really, really a, a boxing geek. He would start mimicking poses that he had seen in these old 60, 50, 60, 70 year old films. Like one guy who, who knocked out an opponent and stood over him with his hands on his hips, you know, staring down at him. And Tyson said, I, I like that. I like that stance. I'm I'm gonna do that next time I knock a guy out. And he did. And so he had this great reverence for the history and for the title that he was trying to get. And it really added a kind of depth and weight to him, which he already had because his story was, you know, pretty, pretty harrowing story of his, his upbringing in Brownsville, Brooklyn and a broken home and, and a life of crime as a very young boy. So he had a lot going on, but this, this element of history really did add some fascination to him. It made it seem as if he was destined to hold this title. You know, like this was all scripted. This is the person who should hold it. You know, so it, it, it did add a lot of luster to him. And yeah, you know, like like a lot of the other heavyweight champs from past decades, he was one of those characters who was both celebrated and reviled. I mean, the guy had a really bad personal life. You know, he went to jail for rape, had some other troubles as well. So again, that, that he's continuing that trend of of a boxer who we, we both simultaneously celebrate for their, I don't know, manly virile martial ability but also at the same time disdain yeah for sure i mean so uh, i'm sorry tyson was going to say sullivan it's because i've really been been thinking lately about how parallel their career and and life uh, arcs turned out to be because uh, they really did you know whether it was drinking or tyson with was, was 
more of a drug drug problem than just his his personal demons. They really became notorious in the media. I mean, Tyson took it to a, a new level. I mean, the rape conviction was, it was an awful episode. And then when he got out of jail, there was these other episodes with biting uh, Evander Holyfield's ear, which is just even by boxing standards is an infamous <laughs> was an infamous moment, you know. And you just saw him at the end of his career 12, 13 years ago, and you just thought to yourself, well, I know how this story's going to end. You know, we know how the story's going to end, and it's not going to be pretty. But he, like Sullivan before him, surprised us and showed that he had a different, he had a different plan, and he had a different, uh, he had another chapter to write. And uh, and it's it's really heartening to see it. Um, he really turned his life around in, in really similar ways to, to Sullivan. In fact, they even both, you know, one man shows. I mean, that's what Sullivan was doing. He was, when he was giving his temperance lectures, he was kind of telling the story of his life and how he reformed himself. And that's, that's more or less what Tyson does in that, in that one man show of his. So it, it is an interesting parallel. It's an interesting how it comes uh, full, full circle. I'm sure Tyson would appreciate it too. Right. So if he's the last one, like, what do you think, led to the demise of the the heavyweight boxer being sort of this just giant in American culture. What do you think? So we mentioned like so the, there's the multiple governing governing bodies each claiming each laying claim to being the the holder of the heavyweight title. That was one facet, but what else is going on? Yeah, several things. I mean, one is is certainly the rise of other sports. That's that's one factor. It's not not the whole story by any stretch, but it's certainly a part of it. As I was saying before, you know, in the real heyday of boxing, really through the era of Joe Lewis, which it ter- takes you right to mid-century, boxing doesn't have that much competition other than baseball. And baseball's baseball is a national game. You don't have to worry. It's just it just is what it is, you know. But besides baseball, boxing was it was didn't really have any rivals and that began to change the nfl really took off in the late 50s you know the nba would soon take off as well and other sports started to come in and then the rise of television came in which originally helped boxing a lot because it was very popular on television and people from a certain generation still remember it the friday night fights as they called them but boxing had so many different problems it didn't have any leadership it didn't have any commission or coherent structure it had a terrible corruption problem, including for one period in particular, massive mafia influence. It was essentially run by the mob for the late 40s through most of the 50s. And these things start to catch up with it. You know, indictments, uh, antitrust suits, the corruption of managers and promoters, deaths in the ring, which was always a presence in boxing. But they begin, it begins to bother people more than they did in the past, including fights that were shown on TV where the fighter died. It's kind of like the Vietnam effect that people talk about. You know, Vietnam was the first war shown on TV that started to really alarm people and traumatize them in a way that other wars had not. And and, uh, when a few of these things happened with boxing, that became a real issue. Also economically, you know, boxing above of all sports is the sport that draws from the lowest economic strata because it's it's a very tough thing to do to be a fighter. And if you could be a baseball player instead, or a basketball player, or, or a or an attorney, <laughs> you know, maybe that would be better. And uh, so the stock of young men desperate enough to try this starts to be a little bit less 
less uh, robust than it was, say, 1900, even though there's still plenty of them. You know, the standard of living in the United States from 1900 to now is, has multiplied several times over. So you've just a lot of different forces, but the corruption and chaos of boxing's organization really can't be stressed enough from what we were talking about with the championships, because, you know, with all the problems that sport had, when you add the, the, the problem that nobody even knows who the champion is anymore, what is the reason that a casual fan wants to wants to bother with this you know so it began to lose fans and finally for me i remember because i lived through this it left television it used to be on regular television and then the fights increasingly moved to cable and then to pay-per-view and that was great for the the fighters fighting in those bouts because they made a lot of money but it wasn't very good for getting the sport into the mainstream when you show up at work on monday monday morning and talking at the coffee machine about what you watched that weekend it wasn't boxing because you know in the old days people would have seen that fight on saturday afternoon on abc and that was a big part uh, of my growing up boxing was on saturday afternoons almost all the time and there were big fights championship fights and that's how i i found the sport so it kind of cordoned itself off into this premium pay model. And along with its, its many other problems, it just slowly kind of marginalized itself. And then we just didn't have another American heavyweight who would come along. I think all of that probably could have been dealt with one way or the other if you had another Tyson come along, because figures like that do do capture people. But the sport began to really decline in the United States in such a way that the heavyweights, which had always been an American thing, by the turn of the 21st century, you woke up and all of a sudden, all the contenders were in Europe, most of them anyway. And these two brothers from Ukraine, the Klitschko brothers, held the title for you know a decade and a half between them before these new guys, Anthony Joshua, the British fighters, have now taken over. So it's kind of come full circle because boxing really starts, modern boxing starts in Great Britain. And now we've got the heavyweight title over in Great Britain again. So whether it can come back or not, I you know, it is 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 hard to say but there are a lot of forces behind uh behind what happened to boxing and i should say not all of it was really boxing's fault i think some of it was some of it was a little, was inevitable right. i'm curious after you you know you researched and wrote about these guys because i mean boxers like there's sort of this archetype of american manliness I'm, did you learn anything about being a man by studying these really complicated figures who you know were both celebrated and and reviled at the same time yeah, you know, I when I was writing the book, I one question I tried to keep in in my mind to see if I could answer was, you know, that I thought might really anchor me in exploring these guys was what was it that drew me to them in the first place when I was a kid? I mean, you know, you get drawn to lots of things when you're a kid. Why why did they seize my imagination so much and, and really never let go? What was it about them or what was it about boxing? And I think as best I can tell what it was, and, and that relates to your, your question about manliness, is that I think what got through to me as a kid that I didn't realize consciously at the time was that the experience of the boxer is such a solitary one. You know, they, they have their support systems and their trainers and sparring partners and, and all that. But at its heart, the endeavor is a solo one. And that's really dramatized with that walk down the ring that I talked about. And it's dramatized by all your your guys leaving you alone in the ring to face your opponent. And I think it was Joyce Carol Oates who wrote that the opponent is you. You know, it's it the opponent is you. It's it's your reflection. And there's nowhere to hide. If you're if you're unprepared, it will show. If you're not in physical shape, it will show. If you lose your fortitude at the moment of 
truth, it will show. And there's nowhere to hide behind a teammate. You know, in, in other sports, you can hope that Tom Brady will bail you out, and he probably will. <laughs> but there's there's nowhere to go in boxing. You're 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 left to your own resources. And I, I think looking back as a kid, it was the starkness of that confrontation which really got through to me. I remember as a kid feeling this knot in my stomach when I would watch the fighters walk up the aisle to the ring because I was I was putting myself in their shoes and and thinking about what it must have felt like to face this test. And uh, you know, we all we all face our tests. We all face fears, but most of us don't have to face them in an arena full of thousands of people, you know, in a contest where, uh, you know, victory could bring glorification, but failure could mean destruction or, or humiliation. And I, I think it was the way they handled that, you know, ultimately you can only face that kind of thing with courage, which doesn't mean not feeling fear. It means dealing with fear and with some form, some form of stoicism. And fighters really have to have that. And, and whatever else uh, they did in their lives and however uneven the rest of their personal lives may have been, they kind of know the answer to the question about themselves that most of us outside of the military are probably still wondering about. Well, Paul, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your book? There's a lot more information about the book on my website, which is paulbeston.com. And it's got a blog on there too, where I write about other things about these guys. And you know, the best place to buy the books on Amazon. Fantastic. Well, Paul Beston, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was Paul Beston. He's the author of the book, The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also find out more information about Paul's work at paulbeston.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash boxingkings, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast and got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please share the show with a friend or family member who you think would also enjoy it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.